Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Hey, whether you're here in person or watching remotely online, we welcome you to Bible Parish Church this morning as we gather together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, as we enter uh, the summer months and as we continue as a, uh, a community and a nation to hopefully continue to come out of the pandemic, uh, may we just never take for granted how awesome it is and what a privilege and a gift it is from our Creator to come here and to meet together, both here on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week in the small groups as we gather to be the church together in person again. I know that's something that I don't want to forget as we move on, whether it's a year from now or whether it's five, ten years from now, to remember how precious this was and how much we missed it when it was gone and how much we want to prioritize it again, like I said, both in big groups and small groups gatherings. So welcome, uh, and thank you for coming here this morning and worshiping with us. A uh, couple quick announcements before we begin. One, if you are a VBS volunteer, there will be a training for all volunteers after the morning worship service next Sunday, June 27th. Also, we're just continuing to recognize the birthdays of children in the church who have had birthdays this past week. Uh, so congratulations, both Maeve Woolley and uh, Luke Murray. Uh, as always, we're excited to have you here as part of our congregation. Uh, finally, our praise band will be playing today at 3 o'clock at Hampton Beach, uh, and you're all encouraged to come out and support them. It should be a great day for a live outdoor uh, uh, outdoor um, praise, time of praise and worship. So if you could please uh, take a moment to quiet your hearts uh, before we enter uh, worship together. Please stand and uh, join us in worshiping the Lord.
Please bow your heads and join me in the prayer of faith. God of glory, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. That in our sinfulness and rebellion, you came to rescue us and draw us to yourselves to be your kingdom people, living out your new kingdom here on earth. Help us to be faithful servants who follow you in all that we do. May we not be like the unfaithful servant of the parable Jesus gives, who gave up on living out and growing in his faith, thinking that the master would never return. May we be a people who reflect your sacrifice, your love, and your mercy. May our hearts be filled with a response of love to both our community and our people here at church today. Lord, we continue to pray for the country of India and our missionaries there who continue to struggle with the pandemic. We pray that the numbers would be in decline, that the vaccine would be plentiful and be rolling out quickly, uh, providing immunity to both individuals and that entire nation. We continue to pray for our local community that we can see the recession of the pandemic, although being worked out through the hard work of many people, ultimately coming from you, our creator and sustainer. May this draw people to you, that they would know the forgiveness of sins and be people of repentance and be people of your kingdom who are seeking to live and follow you. We pray for the many who are continuing to struggle with anxiety and fear in our community. Lord, as your people, we don't want them to suffer in fear. May their anxiousness and fear lead them to find peace in you. May they know their maker and creator and sustainer and know that you are with them. And if you are with them, they don't need to be afraid. Lord, we continue to pray for the Tucker and the McDonald families as they mourn the sudden and tragic loss of Eden. We pray for John Trudell, uh, that he would have a quick recovery and that he would be able to come home soon. And Lord, we continue to pray for Mark Vianu uh, and his family and that his cancer would be in recession. Finally, Lord Jesus, be with Jim as he comes and explains your word to us today. Give him clarity in his words, conviction in his belief, and wisdom in his insights. Give us, as your community, people who have open hearts and minds to hear and to put into action, both individually and in the community, what the words you have for us today. Lord, we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers, and uh, we're glad that you're with us today. I have sort of a, uh, I should move this out of the way, right? Okay. <clears throat> I want to sort of uh, give a preamble uh, apology in advance, because I'm probably going to step on a lot of toes this morning. Um, for those of you who know me, my name is Jim McDonald. I'm probably the longest tenured current serving elder here at the church, um, and I'm really a pretty even-keeled kind of guy, unless I have a chance to talk about Jesus, and unless I have a chance to talk about what it really means to serve him, and today I get to do that. And when that happens, I've been known to get a little fired up. And so I'm excited this morning because I get a chance to share with you some things that I'm convinced that God's word tells us, but I'm also uh, sort of a little nervous because I'm going to be really heavy kind of on application. And that oftentimes steps on toes. Now, I want you to understand, I don't have anybody in mind with the illustrations that I use today. If you have a group of people assembled that are, you know, a hundred or so people in a a gathering, you're going to have sort of typical sort of things. And so, if if you're convicted, it's because the Spirit of God's doing it. I'm not singling you out. Okay, I just want to make that clear up front uh, before we begin. Let Let me pray for us, then we'll jump into God's Word together.
God, we do pray right now that you'd open our hearts. Uh, we want to see Jesus. We want to live like Jesus. We want our lives to be characterized by the marks of a disciple of Jesus. And too often we settle for something less than that. So, Lord, as I've been convicted this week, I pray that you would speak through me this, this morning and that you would work in our hearts, that together we might consider what our church should be like as we move forward to serve this place in this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So after the last year, over the last year or so, the elders have been talking about the future of the church. Pastor Fugate has been here just about four years now. Uh, we, we've gone through this transition from, uh, you know, a, an incredible time of ministry with Pastor Boylan where, you know, Parish Road was effectively evangelized for Jesus Christ. A lot of people came to faith. And now we're onto a new venture, right? I mean, it's time for the rest of this community to hear about Jesus Christ. And so, as you'd expect, the elders have been spending a considerable amount of time talking about, you know, how might that happen? What kind of people do we need to be in order that the love of Christ would be shown abroad in this community, and what might that look like in terms of our day-to-day partnership with one another here as we try to minister the gospel. Uh, We are convinced, as an elder board, that our focus needs to be, first of all, internally, because we believe in the sovereignty of God, and therefore we believe that God will evangelize our neighbors as we ourselves are transformed. So in a nutshell, that's what we're going to be talking about today, is the opportunity that we have to be transformed as we consider what a life of faith might look like. So I want to highlight for you this morning five marks of a disciple. And I'm going to flesh each of those out in a good bit of detail this morning. And I'm pretty confident that the elders are going to endorse everything I have to say, but it'll be pretty obvious when I'm speaking for myself as well. So uh, with that as sort of an introductory prelude... Uh, let me give you an outline of the, of the message for those who are type A and need to know where we're headed. And then let me read the text. So the message this morning essentially follows this outline. We believe that as disciples of Byfield Parish Church, we are called to grow up in our faith. We are to grow together as a body, which will therefore stimulate us to reach out to the world so that God will add the increase as we, disciples, as we see disciples being replicated in successive generations of Christians, both here and around the world as he chooses to act. That's the outline. The text is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42, and I'm going to actually take it all the way through 47. It's in your bulletin. It's on page 857 of your pew Bible. This is one of my all-time favorite passages And so I'm going to try to stay in the script, because this is one that I could really talk about for a long, long time. Hear the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as he had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, we see, the first, we see first of all that the early Christian fellowship is characterized by devotion to the apostles' teaching. This would have included Jesus' earthly teaching plus what he had taught the apostles during the 40 days of his resurrection appearances. They had a set of teachings that they understood. Now, in plain language, that text indicates that a disciple of Jesus is committed to growing up in his faith. It's not like, I believe in Jesus, and so that's all there is. We're committed as a church to study God's word, to read our Bible, to listen to sound Christian teaching so that we're able to articulate what we believe and why we believe it. Now, to me, this speaks of the need for this to be a lifelong quest. This is something that it doesn't matter whether you're 8 or 98, the process is still ongoing. You never reach the place where there's no more to learn. And we all have people that we look up to as people that were models of that kind of commitment to God and commitment to his word. For for me, one of those people was my grandmother. My grandmother came to this country from Nova Scotia at 16 years of age to work as a domestic. For those of you who are young, that means she was a servant in a house on Beacon Hill. And after serving as a servant for the first couple years, she got promoted to cook in the house on Beacon Hill. She had a formal education of probably eighth grade, but it was never really formalized like that because she had to work on the family farm. And so she had to walk about three miles into school, and as a result of that, she really had really teaching for the out, throughout the school, through the, through the regular school year from about third or fourth grade. But after that, when it was planting time, she was at home planting. And when it was harvest time, she was home harvesting. And so really, her education, her formal education was pretty limited. She grew up in a one-room schoolhouse in Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. And it, it's the middle of nowhere. It's like a two-dimensional place. I mean, it's that small. My grandmother loved Jesus. She was a student of God's word throughout her life. She read and studied her Bible. She attended worship faithfully. As a cook, she had to cook for the, for the rich family on Beacon Hill in the morning, and so she had to go to evening service and to women's ministry activities during the week. She attended those things, listened carefully, studied assiduously, and over time became herself a teacher of God's word with no formal education but a passion and a love for Jesus that was infectious. And I grew up in a home with her. And so when I was a young boy when I was a young boy when I grew up in the morning I sat with my grandmother and we went through the catechism the shorter catechism together. Okay, And then when I got home from school my mother sat with me and we would memorize the Bible. Okay, that was my upbringing. That was like every day, seven days a week. And so this godly influence affected my life, as you would, affect, as you would expect. Two anecdotes from my grandmother. The first is when I came home from college, my sophomore year of college. I'm about 20 years old. I've been studying pretty hard on the scriptures. I really, I mean, I, I became a Christian at age 8. I really committed my life to seriously go, pursuing Jesus at age 15, so I've really been kind of into it for five years now, right? I come home from college at age 20, and my grandmother pulls me aside. She says, Jimmy, Jimmy, I've been reading the book of Jude. 
And I'm just wondering, what do you think it means when it says that the archangel Michael is contending with the devil for the body of Moses? Did you know that was in the Bible? If you're sitting here like, like I was in H3, I'm like, what are you even talking about, Grandma? I didn't know that was in the Bible. No, it's in the Bible. Here was a woman who aged, you know, she's now in her 60s or something. She wants to understand. She has an insatiable desire to know God's word, to understand it, to internalize it, to really make it her own. And so she's wondering about an obscure passage in Jude. That's who we're supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? If you love Jesus, you've got to love his word. Now, how does that manifest itself? Here's story number two. When my grandmother's dying, she has severe diabetes. She has no idea who she is. She doesn't know my mother. She thinks it's her mother. She thinks my sister is her sister, Annie. No idea what's going on. But if you came to my grandmother and you said, Grandma, why don't we say the 23rd Psalm together? It was all there. She could recite it by heart in the King James. Grandma, how about, how, how about we say Psalm 100 together? It's all there. Psalm 121, Psalm 46. I could go on and on and on. She knew God's, it was there. Do you know what I'm saying? Her love for God's word infused her life. And as a result of that, she died peacefully. That's how we got to die. But you don't die that way if you don't know God's word, if it isn't part of who you are. For real. Christian friends, the elders of this church would ask you to pray about becoming that kind of Christ follower. Your age doesn't matter. Your academic credentials make no difference. Your ability as a student in school, you could have been the worst student in school of all time. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. All that matters is that you decide that you want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And then you ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten, to illuminate your heart, to enlighten your mind, to give you insight that you're not going to get from some book somewhere. It's because God's going to speak to you. He wants to speak to you. Do you get it? If you're a disciple of Jesus, that's his desire for your heart. We want to be a church that's characterized by God's word. But we want to be a church that's characterized by people who love God's word. For whom God's word is what they, it's who they are, it's who they're becoming. The next part of the, the next mark of a disciple is that they, he or she, is to be devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, what's the result of that mark? That's the, that result is that the church will grow together in the faith. We will become more and more united in common purpose and common goal and common passion for the lost. What might that look like? Well, let me at the very least suggest that the text tells us that we are to be engaged in life-on-life relationships. 
life-on-life relationships. Let me flesh that out. Surround yourself with people who love you enough to stop you from doing something stupid. You know on American Idol at the early seasons, I always have some poor guy stand up and he couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. You know what I'm talking about? And everyone would laugh and mock this guy. Why didn't that guy have friends who loved him enough to say, dude, you can't sing. Don't go. Why was that? You need people who love you enough to say, you are going to make a huge mistake right now. Don't embarrass yourself. Don't do it. Don't be that guy. You need to make sure that you have people who love you enough to be really clear. I know a lot of you young people, and you don't take nuance really well. Subtlety is not your virtue. Some of you older guys are that way too. If you need to be hit up up by a two-by-four, then so be it. But you've got to listen to what people have to say to you. You need people in your life who will speak the truth to you. Find truth-tellers and encourage them to speak into your life. Now, there are obviously times in life where you want to retreat into yourself and you want to be alone and you want to try and understand what's going on, you want to process it. I get that. That's fine. But everybody needs time alone. But more importantly, we need people in our lives. Let me digress here for a minute. I'm going to talk first to the men and then I'm going to talk to the women. This is clearly me. So you can disregard everything that I say now. Listen, guys, we all need accountability in our lives. And there's no better way than to have a group of Christian men you trust who will speak to you the things that you don't want to hear because they see that your life is going the wrong way. That accountability is a two-way street. When you find that you're being tempted or tested or tried, you need to own up to that first. So they're not trying to do damage control. And then you need to man up. You need to man up. You need to face your failures and your pending disasters. And with the help of your Christian brothers, you need to change. I'm tired of hearing about people whose marriages have fallen apart who will not take the, chip, the step that's required to love their wife with the sacrificial love that Jesus had for the church. That's what the marriage vow is about. I'm tired of hearing about guys who struggle with pornography or struggle with substance, substance abuse and will not confront it and will not deal with it and live in the seclusion of their homes watching Netflix and wasting their time because rather than face up to who they are, they're not willing to do that. I'm tired of that, guys. And I don't know anybody here who's struggling with that, but I guarantee you, if there's this many people and there's this many men, somebody in here struggles with that. There's not a hundred billion dollar porn industry for nothing. That has to change. And it won't change if you won't let men into your life who will confront you on that and then change your life. The mark of a disciple requires you to seek out a brotherhood of men who will live in community with you, who will hold you up, who will pray with you, who will sustain you, who will walk by your side, who will not leave you alone, who are committed to the tough life that a life of faith is all about. 
Is it going to be painful? Yep. Absolutely. This church needs men who are on fire for Jesus and who are not hiding sin, but are transparent in their lives so that their lives have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we're loving one another and reaching this community for Jesus Christ. And that's the bottom line. Ladies, you need a group of close Christian friends to hold you accountable. If you're starting to get emotionally attached to somebody who's wrong for you, you need accountability partners who will help you see the truth of the situation that you are facing. If you have a dysfunctional relationship, a rebellious child, or you're being tempted to make a poor life choice, you need strong, faithful women who you can talk to, share your life with. You need women who will pray with you who will stand by you, who will cry with you, who will stay with you, through thick and thin. Too many middle-aged women have married young, started a family, and then due to isolation and disillusionment, decided they don't want to be married anymore. And that's an appalling thing. And that's as true with Christians as it is with non-Christians. That's just a truism. If you don't have godly women in your life who will speak the truth to you, you make choices that lead to regret. Let me be really clear, as if I'm not being clear yet. Don't let these relationships become a source of gossip. Don't simply vent something because you have to get your story out. That's gossip. And Christian sisters, you need to call your sisters on it if they start to gossip. And you need to say, I won't listen to that. La, 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 I'm not listening. Stop now. Your relationships of fellow fellow women are so precious, so valuable, so important. You dare not let those things fall apart because of gossip. Because gossip leads to a lack of trust. How will I know that you're not telling my secrets? Women, you need to be a model for for the young people in this church. You need to be a model for all of us. As to how to do this. There can't be idle chatter among you. First Thessalonians talks specifically about that. And the importance of that as a characteristic of women. Look at me, people. Without accountability in your life, hopes, dreams, plans can unravel in a hurry. Due to a blind spot that you are either unwilling or unable to perceive on your own. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We are meant for life together. When Luke writes that they were devoted to fellowship, that's what he's describing. It's not just about fun and food. He's talking about life on life. Hard conversations when needed kind of living. So the shipwreck of life doesn't happen to you. Disciples of Jesus are people who are open to input in their lives, and they're willing to change. They look for the truth in what is being said to them, even if there's just the smallest little kernel of truth, and the rest can be ignored. Look for the kernel of truth. Act on the kernel of truth. Be committed to Christ. Be committed to change. Be committed to the fellowship of believers here, and your life will be transformed. Your elders want you to be those kinds of people. Third, I need a breath. (laughs) The world in which we live is tremendously divided. 
Accusations of racism or white supremacy are now a default position to end a disagreement. The world has redefined sexual identity. In what was once a common language, words that we all thought we knew have now lost their meaning, and they mean something opposite to what we grew up with. Ethnic struggles, immigration debates, a debate over the amount of taxes that is my fair share, all those things cause division in our world. How should our church navigate a fractured world right now as we seek to grow our fellowship? The answer I have is probably surprising to you. I think the church needs to practice radical hospitality. Radical hospitality. This will allow us to grow out into the world if we are in the world, not of the world, but we are in the world because we want to love them, we want to know them. When a new family moves into your neighborhood, let me challenge you to be the first to welcome them, invite them to a meal or for a cup of coffee. Don't just bring over the plate of, uh, the plate of cookies, actually invest in them. That sounds easy enough. But what if the new family is different from you? Racially, ethnically, politically, religiously, maybe with regard to sexual orientation. What if your new neighbors are a lesbian couple with two young children the age of your children? What if they're Muslim and the wife wears the hijab? Do you love them too? Correct me if I'm wrong, but Jesus ate with Samaritans. Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Our world needs to have Christians who are willing to practice radical hospitality. Be the one to invite them over and get to really know them. That will break down stereotypes on both sides. It will reinforce for you the fact that you have more in common with your neighbor than you might imagine, no matter how different they may be from you. Don't judge the world using Christian ethics and standards. They don't know Jesus. How can we judge them by our standards? Love people. Just love people. Unconditionally loving your neighbor is not a compromise of your convictions. When the entire neighborhood is out doing yard work and you stop for a smoothie or an iced coffee, make an extra one, walk over to your neighbor and give it to them for absolutely no reason at all. And then chat. Look for and practice random acts of kindness and hospitality for non-Christians. When you walk through your neighborhood, pray for the people at every house in your block. Your goal is to be the person in your neighborhood people will call in times of crisis. Because you are known and you are trusted even though you're that crazy Christian. When your neighbor finds that they need to rush to an aged parent in the middle of the night, you want to be the person that they call to watch their children. You want to hear them say, I've never left Sally and Janie alone, but I need to go to my mother right now. And you were the one that I thought to call because I know I can trust you. When you want, you want to be the guy that your neighbor calls when he learns he may be laid off or that his wife is thinking about leaving him and he's in a panic about it. He knows he needs to vent. He knows he needs to process what's going on in his life. 
But more importantly, he knows he just needs to be heard by somebody who cares. And when he looks at you, he knows that at the core of your being, even though he doesn't agree with you on a lot of stuff, he knows that you care about him. Because you've invested in him. In even a casual way, makes a difference. I'm not going to idealize or sugarcoat this. Radical hospitality is going to cost you. Life is messy. And I'm asking you right now to live in the middle of the mess with people who hurt, with people who don't know Jesus. And I'm telling you that even your best intentions can lead to rejection. And that stinks. Because rejection hurts. The neighbors may hold parties and not invite you. That's okay. They don't know Jesus yet. Keep listening. Keep learning. Keep loving. Keep trusting God. Love people enough to risk knowing their story. Making someone a friend is not compromising your convictions. The disciple of Jesus opens the home to people who are the other. The breaking of bread in Acts 2 could refer to the sacrament of communion, but it also is a fundamental discipleship characteristic of openness to the people who are in need. The elders of our church want us to be characterized by a radical hospitality that forces the world to take notice that we are different. Start praying about what that might look like for you. When you take a risk and reach out, share it with the people in your life that are helping you live, your, live out your faith. You can't do this on your own. You need encouragement. You need people to put some steel in your spine. You need somebody to help you get there. It doesn't happen overnight. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We are meant to live together. Fourth, your identity needs to be in Christ alone. Here's a piece of news. You're not going to like this one. If you practice hospitality as I just described it, you will likely find that there are some Christians, hopefully not in this fellowship here, who will judge you harshly because you're loving your neighbor and you're not living in a cloistered community of believers. That's true. I hate to say it, but that's true. They're going to accuse you of compromising your faith. They're going to say that you're, that you're living for the wrong reason, that you're doing the wrong kind of things. They're going to challenge you. Why are you associating with that one? What's the matter? Why aren't you, why aren't you coming to all of our things? Okay. Every one of us here who grew up in a Christian home or has been in Christ for a long time has a little bit of legalism in us. Or a lot. But at the very least, we all have a little bit of legalism in us. Things that are innocent in and of themselves are judged by legalistic Christians as something that a real Christian wouldn't do. When I was a boy, 
there were people said that Christians, real Christians, would never go to a movie. When I was looking at colleges, there were Christian colleges that outlawed playing cards. You couldn't play cards if you were going to go to that college. You had to sign a pledge that you wouldn't play cards. Now, ironically, you could play Rook. But if you know anything about cards, it looks an awful lot like regular cards, only they don't have kings and queens, they have numbers. But there's 52 of them, and there's four different colors. Perhaps you grew up in a home that prohibited drinking alcohol because Christians don't drink, or smoking because Christians don't smoke. We, we went to a church years ago in New Jersey where this question came up, what, what sort of prohibitions have you grown up with? And one of the women said, mixed bathing. I was like, mixed bathing? What does that even mean? And she went on to explain that in her youth group growing up, if girls went to the beach, the boys were not allowed to come because they might be a stumbling block for the boys. And when the boys went to the beach, the girls certainly weren't going to be there. Mixed bathing? Really? Somewhere somebody felt that that was something that would help you maintain your purity. And so that became a guideline for that, for that group of people. That's legalism in a nutshell, right? Do you remember that it took our church 18 months to decide whether or not to hold a square dance downstairs? Think about that. 18 months to decide whether or not we could hold a square dance. Why was that? Because somewhere in the past, and I don't say this in any kind of condemning way, somewhere in the past, somebody felt that dancing was a sin, and so therefore we could not do that in this building. And so we honored that until we talked about it for 18 months, and then decided that maybe it wouldn't be that bad after all, that the church would not fall apart if we did. If your identity is in Christ... Would it not be true that all things are now lawful for you? Didn't Jesus go to a wedding in Cana in Galilee and make wine? Pretty sure he danced too. Let me ask you this question. If you knew that a square dance would open the door for somebody to engage Christians in a manner that made them normal, that thereby made it possible for them to hear the gospel because they couldn't hear it before, would you stand on a conviction that says no dancing? I don't think any of us would. You don't know. But don't live in fear. Don't live in fear. What about bingo? When you were a little kid, did you play bingo with your siblings? I did. But you know, there's a church down the road who plays bingo to meet their monthly budget. Does that mean that bingo in and of itself should never be played anywhere around our church? God forbid that we be short-sighted people who turn people away from the gospel because of our little legalisms. God forbid that if somebody in our fellowship wants to do something to reach our community for Jesus, God forbid that we would question their motivation or the way in which they do it. Come alongside of each other. 
If you have a problem, talk about it in private. Don't gossip about it, whatever it may be. You can reconcile these little differences. Look, if you're in Christ this morning, you are a new creature. You can engage the world in a loving and caring manner. People who are insecure or legalistic in the way that they read God's word are going to struggle with your freedom, and rather than seek freedom for themselves, they're likely going to confront you in an attempt to respond to, to, respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Hear me very clearly. If you are serving God and you know your motivation is, pu- is pure, do not be cowed by some loud voices that are seeking to put you into a little box Don't bother defending yourself. Merely pray for the person who's trying to box you in. If your identity is in Christ and the Holy Spirit prompts you to love your neighbor as yourself, I'll guarantee you the evil one will try to stop that. Stand firm in doing what's right. Pray to be understood. But more importantly, pray to be faithful to what God is saying to your heart. Finally, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Our greatest wish for our church is that we would always evaluate our hopes and our dreams in light of the kingdom of God. If your identity is truly in Christ, then seeking first the kingdom of God means very simply, God owns it all. God owns it all. He owns your career. When you have the chance for a promotion, don't automatically say yes. The question is whether or not God wants you to take it. If you're fully invested in loving your neighbors in your community and your investment in your church fellowship and the promotion requires that you move away, then you have a much bigger decision to make. Because the Benjamins don't drive your ministry. I'm not saying don't take the job. I'm saying seeking first the kingdom of God requires discernment. And you get discernment through prayer and reflection and counsel from the friends that are in your life so that you can go with a clear conscience if you're called to move. Some years ago, we had a godly man in this church who was an elder here who had a chance to get a significant promotion with a company that would require him to relocate to Indiana. That man had a large family, but after prayer and counsel, he chose to stay here with a lower-paying job. He clearly could have profited by moving. Extra money, lower cost of living, all of that looked good. But I remember him coming to me at the time and saying this, how can I take that job if I'm an elder here? And I was like stunned. Really? You mean this church would be the reason that you wouldn't take a job that pays like one and a half times what you're making and you can have a much better cost, you know, situation life-wise? If you're devoted to the teaching of the fellowship, can you just walk away? If you're devoted to one another, can you just walk away? If you get upset about something, can you just walk away? If somebody hurts your feelings, can you just walk away? Those are not rhetorical questions. The answer to those is a resounding no. You can't just walk away. If you're devoted to the teaching of fellowship, a true disciple of Christ, committed to prayer, accountability, and fellowship, 
Seeking first the kingdom of God is serious business. You're not floating along. God also owns your family. He owns your family. If your concern for the non-Christians in your neighborhood causes some who should be your Christian friends to stop their children from playing with yours, should that mean that you abandon your friends and acquiesce to that kind of pressure? No. God owns your family. God will raise up like-minded friends who want to change the world for Christ. Stand strong in your conviction of loving your neighbor as yourself. I've got to tell you, I am very excited to see a core group of young families who understand that the call of the gospel in this church is big enough and powerful enough to trust the God who owns your children. If God chooses to pour out his blessing on this place by bringing in the broken, the disenfranchised, and the people who we would not ordinarily associate with, such that the Sunday morning worship service here begins to look more like a hospital than a country club, young parents need to decide. Are you going to say... I don't want my kids hanging around with those kids from Georgetown. Or you're going to say, you know what? God's got this. I can trust him. And he owns them anyway. God has our children. He has our family. Devote yourself to living out the gospel. God also owns your future. The good news is that your days are in his hands. This means that you can pursue God with reckless abandon. You can be bold. You can break the mold of what is expected by American society. You can cultivate a life that is sold out for Jesus. You need to be constantly trying to discern if there is something more that God would have you consider. That's what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. Friends, what I'm talking about this morning is something that every person in this room can do. Every person. doesn't matter if you're 8 or 98. You can do this. There's no requirements. There's no prerequisites except that you love Jesus. That's the only prerequisite that has before you this morning. Now make no mistake, the elders of this church are convinced that the Holy Spirit desires us to embrace the marks of the disciple that I have discussed this morning. But we also understand this is a congregational church. And so we need to wait and see if you embrace this too. We need to hear back whether or not you're all in. In a very real sense, we live in a world today that is closer to the early church than it is to anything that I grew up in. The world today, America today is essentially a repaganized nation. That may be overstated, but not by a lot. If there was ever a Christian consensus in our nation, it certainly was from another time and another place in history. We are a minority who can change the world through the power of the Holy Spirit set loose in our midst. The book of Acts talks about the world being turned upside down by the Christian church that showed the world how they loved each other. This town 
and the towns surrounding us can be turned upside down in the same way by revival sent by the sovereign God. You may be sitting here today and saying, is it possible that we can experience a working of God such that the Lord is adding to our number daily those who are being saved, like we just read about in Acts chapter 2? Why not? Why not here? Why not now? Now, I don't presume, I'm not going to presume upon God that, that if all of a sudden we start to live a certain way that he's gonna, this is like a cause and effect. Not at all. But why not? Why shouldn't we pray expecting that God would add daily to our number those who are being saved? Not transfer growth. People whose lives are a mess who come to realize that Jesus is the answer. But for the elders to move aggressively in this direction, we need to know that you want in. I turned 69 last month. I don't really have that many years left. You know, I'm probably 70% of the way through, right? If I make it to 100. Joyce and I said, we're going to be married for 75 years. I'll be 97, she'll be 95. She'll be meeting new people every day because she doesn't know who she is. And I'll be just sitting over in the corner, you know, like, like this. But, but you know what? If God, if God allows us 97 years, we're still more than 70% of the way there. I want more than anything else. This is my heart for you. For us. I want more than anything else in this entire world to be part of a community where God talk characterizes our time together on Sunday and throughout the week. That's where I want to be. And this church is that place and can be that place even more. The weather, irrelevant. We all know what a snowstorm looks like. We don't need to talk about it. The Red Sox, the Bruins, the Celtics, yes, even the New England Patriots, not really that important. Chit-chat? Time is precious. Time is fleeting. Let's share our lives with each other. Let's be honest. Let's be open. Advancing the kingdom of God in this time and in this place, studying and learning God's word, having deepening friendships where we pray for one another because we really are sharing our lives together, being known and having my hurts known and being bound up by the loving fellowship of believers, that, my friends, is real life. That is Christian community. That's the mark of discipleship. And that's who we need to become. So here's what I want you to do. We're congregational. We're not going for an immediate response. This is no altar call. I want you to take the summer, and I want you to pray about this kind of radical commitment to Jesus and to each other. I don't want anybody making a decision based on emotion of a moment. But as you take stock of your life and where you really are, not, not some facade that you're putting on for everybody else. You take stock of your life and where you really are. And you decide that you want to live your life for as long as the Lord gives you in this kind of way. Then I want you to talk to one of the elders. Their names are printed in the bulletin. You can find them. And when we know who's all in, then we're going to look for opportunities to do it together. To do life together. Now, 
I know that some of you are sitting here right now and you're going, like, uh, what, what does that really mean? Right? Like, what are you asking me to do? I don't know. I don't know. Let's say that you came to me toward the end of the summer and you said, you know, I, I really feel like God's convicted my heart and I want all in. I'd probably look at you and say, so what part of your life that is outside of God's plan for you right now do you really need to work on? You know, is there like an area of sin or something in your life that, that's, really, that's really troubling you? And you look at me and after some hesitation, you're like, well, my kids are driving me crazy. Then probably we'd line up somebody who can, who can, who can mentor you on what it's like to be a parent. You know what? We might find that there's like six parents who all feel that same thing. We'd get them together. Wouldn't that make sense? They can live life together and struggle through with somebody together. Or, or you might come to me and you might say, you know, I really feel like I'm all in. And I'd say, well, what do you really feel like you need to do? And you might say, well, you know, I really feel like I'm trapped in my marriage. And I'd be like, really? The pain must be extreme. We need to hook you up with somebody who can talk to you, talk to you and pray with you and hear your concern, hear your hurt. Look, you might be a woman in here this morning who has been sexually abused or had an abortion and you've been carrying that around in secret for years and you want to be set free from that. There's only one way that freedom comes, folks. You bring it and you pray it through. I'm not trying to minimize this. This is serious stuff that I'm asking you to think about. Maybe you've never been willing to look at authority in your life. You just rebel against authority. You need somebody to call you out. Look, everybody here is different. And we're all sinful. We're all a mess. And we're all broken. But why live your brokenness in isolation when you can live it with somebody else? Don't kid yourself. For our church to become the kind of church that I'm asking us to become, we're going to need a level of candor with one another that is absolutely contrary to your New England upbringing. Your Yankee independence is going to have to be set aside so that you can be dependent on Jesus and dependent on others. Now that in and of itself may say, I'm out. Then you're out. I'm not naive in standing here and saying, say, everybody's going to be in. No. I know some people aren't in, and that's okay. I still want you here on Sunday mornings. I still want to love you. I still want to get to know you as much as I can. But people that are in... We want to make a difference. The time is short. Our world is literally going to hell. Do you understand that? We believe that eternity is literally at its stake here. And if we aren't together, they're not together. And they're going to be lost and outside of God's love for all eternity. Let me pray. Father God, the young people who sit before you today have dreams and plans for their future. 
I pray that you would honor the desires of their hearts, whatever they may be. Help them to do the things that they long to do, to go the places they want to go, to love and be loved. Help them to decide at a young age and then truly answer the question of how they're going to live. There is no age requirement when you can make a lifelong decision to follow Jesus all the way. And I ask boldly for every young person here this morning that they would decide to live for Jesus. That they would decide to seek first the kingdom of God. I pray for all of our parents who sit here this day. Father, the myriad of emotions that they're probably feeling right now are, are they're yours. They have pride in their children. They have joy in the future that lies before them. And they, they probably have some trepidation as they contemplate the world that their children go out to in that great unknown. I pray that you would grant these parents that are here today confidence and certainty that they will do their best to prepare their children for life if they are totally sold out for Jesus. I pray for those at the start of their careers. I pray that you would impress on the hearts of each person sitting here that a life lived in service to your kingdom and in service to the world is a life worth living. That they would realize early in their professional career that true fulfillment comes less from financial success than in surrender to your will and plan. I pray for those who are set in place career-wise. I pray that the work of our hands would be satisfying, but that we would also recognize that we are not defined by our vocation. Help those in midlife realize that an avocation that is passionate about Jesus will have more impact on our work than we can even imagine. Give us boldness to seek first the kingdom of God. I pray for all of our seniors that they would learn to love you every day with their whole heart. That they would yearn for and long for time in your presence daily. That they would use that time with you to cultivate an attitude and practice of prayer that will shake the very foundations of this community. I pray that you will raise up prayer warriors who will intercede with passion, boldness, concern for the younger people who make up the other part of our church. Father, I pray not for the battle that's before us, because we realize that prayer is the venue in which the outcome of the battle has already been decided. And so I pray for our seniors that they would never lose sight of the priceless treasure that has been laid up for those that seek you. That in and through their faithful service, that they would finish the race strong. I pray that we would love our neighbors and our world, that we would be quick to extend ourselves and into an uncomfortable circumstance in order to advance the kingdom of God, that we would befriend the friendless, that we'd be slow to speak and slower to judge, that we would always give the benefit of the doubt that we would think the best of others, regardless of their political or religious affiliation. God, I pray that we would be healers in a land fractured by division. Father, grant us boldness as we live for you. Help us to make a kingdom difference, to practice and advance the unity of the church, and to live to the glory of God. Amen.
with a chance now to sing a, a certainly appropriate hymn of response to God be the glory. It's on page 66 of your hymnal, or it's in your bulletin. Let me invite you to turn there now, and we'll stand together as we sing.
hear now the benediction from our Father as we find it from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.